Because it's like nine days before Christmas, you'd expect to be hearing some uh, Christmas sermons up in here, wouldn't you? Like this is the time of year and we're still going through Matthew. What are we doing? Uh, Aren't we supposed to stop and do Christmas stuff? We're singing Christmas songs and we're lighting the Advent candles. And uh, one of the the things I love about this time of year is you go into stores and you hear uh, like really amazing hymns, these beautiful Christmas songs, like worshiping God, like the gospel is being declared by Mariah Carey and John Legend, and they just have no idea what they're saying. And I think that's how Christmas sneaks up on a lot of us. It's like, wow, he's been here all along, and he's been speaking all along. And so that's part of why we're continuing through Matthew is because God is speaking, is revealing. If, if the baby that was born was more than just a special little Jewish boy, which he was, and the life that he lived was more than just a good moral life, and it was, then what in the world was he up to? What was that life about? That's what we're unpacking as we look at the Gospel of Matthew. And the stories that we've been looking at, thinking about last week, these miracle stories we began to see Jesus perform, or this really this cluster of them in chapter 8, they're all pounding out the same drumbeat that Jesus is the one with the authority and that the kingdom of heaven has arrived But the thing about it is that the mission doesn't unfold in the way people expect it to. And the kind of people he invites to follow him are not the kind of people that you would expect, or at least the people of that day and age. It really is unexpected how it continues to play out. And it just, it turns people's worldviews upside down. Now, now, God is doing what? (laughs) And who gets to be in? And nobody likes to have their worldview shaken up, then or now. But that's the challenge of this. Jesus doesn't fit our expectations. God is doing uh, his thing, and it ticks the religious leaders off. We see it again this week as well. So what I want to do is I want to start reading in uh, Matthew 9, verse 9. We're going to take a chunk of it, kind of three different parts uh, at a time here. And so if you've got a note sheet, it's printed. It'll be on the screen. Welcome to use one of the black Bibles. And if you want, you can keep that. Uh, That is for you if you want to keep it. So Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people who pour new wine into old wineskins. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The main reason Jesus form of discipleship was so shocking and and still is today is that he 
he breaks down these barriers that we humans erect between one another of who is good, like who is the good person, and who is in, and who is out. And we see it in the calling of Matthew, this local tax collector, to be his disciple. Now, let me tell you something about tax collectors of those times. Like, maybe if you have somebody in your family who works for the IRS, like, they don't talk about that at Thanksgiving. I don't know. It was a lot worse back then. Tax collectors would win a contract for a certain area by highest bid, and then they would up their prices because whatever the margin they could create beyond what they needed to give to the Roman Empire was what they lived on. So it was really about how much could they extort and gouge people. And they did quite well for themselves. So here they were. They're, they're local people with insider knowledge. They knew all the connections. They knew the power of players. They knew just how to twist the right people to leverage on behalf of an occupying foreign power. I mean, it's not an overstatement to say that some of these people were viewed as outright traitors to their people. So here's Matthew sitting at his tax booth, probably on the outskirts of the city of Capernaum, and he's collecting tolls from commercial traffic. They're like, oh, they're walking by his booth hoping the shutters are down that day, that Matthew's not in. Nope, he's in today. Dang it. So, I mean, it's anything like that he could take a toll from, maybe even from the fish that were caught in the lake. We don't know a lot about it, but we assume Matthew was not a well-liked person. He might have been well-known. We don't, we don't know, but what we do know is Jesus shows up and he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And if you recall... The uh, Jesus, when he first called the first four disciples to follow him, they probably had some kind of pre-existing relationship with him. Like they, they had heard about him or they'd seen him or maybe even interacted with him. So this isn't out of nowhere. This is likely true for Matthew as well. He's seen Jesus at work. He's heard him. He's interacted. And now this moment of invitation and decision comes. And I think that's probably how you came to Christ, too, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. There's the process of watching and assessing and absorbing and weighing and considering and then responding. But unlike the other disciples, at least the ones we know about so far, those first converts, this one does not bode well for the PR of Jesus or Matthew, for Jesus has just enlisted a notoriously disreputable person. And for Matthew, this comes at a huge cost for him. His business as a tax collector would have been really lucrative for him. A fisherman, if the discipleship thing didn't work out for him, like where they're trying to figure out Jesus, they could go back to fishing. But Matthew, once he leaves this post, likely that he loses his ability to collect taxes in that district. He's he's walking away from a lot. But for Matthew, this was the first decision of the rest of his life. Because we know him as the humble author of this very gospel that we're reading. I mean, it's crazy, this amazing transformation. And Matthew was was poised to be used by God in this way. He had the scribal techniques from his training as a tax collector and and living as a a Jewish man, become a Christian. He knew the Old Testament. So we we see the the book of Matthew just filled with the ways that Jesus fulfills what God has been doing in his relationship with humanity. And so... Matthew immediately follows Jesus, and he he throws a party for his friends at his house. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. These tax collectors and sinners, they're Matthew's coworkers and friends. It's like the office Christmas party, and and this is not polite society. Like These are the people that really, they're on the outskirts, they're on the margins, the fringes. You see, there's something called 
table fellowship, these rules that are around like, who you allowed into your home, who you ate with that said something about who you were in society, what your religious beliefs were, cleanness, uncleanness, lots of boundaries and barriers, which is why the Pharisees were getting so upset because they were really well known for really strict boundaries on these sorts of things. Most people thought tax collectors were religiously unclean because of their, com- their, their day-to-day interaction with Gentiles, um, because they just were kind of scuzzy people, and because they worked on the Sabbath. They worked seven days a week. They didn't even take the law seriously. And this is why the Pharisees asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, when the, when the Pharisees say sinners... What they mean is people who are willfully ignoring the boundaries of how they understand things should work. Their understanding of being outside of the laws of God. And so for the Pharisees, for Jesus to eat a meal with these people meant that he was, he was condoning their behavior. Like That's what they think it means. But they don't understand Jesus. This is a perfect opportunity for Jesus to clarify who he is and what he's about. He says this, verse 12, on hearing this, they're grumbling about this. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This is one of the most important aspects of Jesus and his ministry, the promise of salvation to sinners. And maybe think like, yeah, and that's what it's about. Like, that's Christianity is, right? You pray to Jesus. Listen, this is radical because they thought salvation was for the morally upright, the ones who could be religious enough. The sinners were on the wrong path. What do you mean salvation is for the sinners? Jesus is going to show them, the Pharisees, that he has a different definition of sinner than they do. It's not just someone who's broken this box of rules, but any person who remains opposed to God's will, which includes them. This is why Jesus says, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He gives them homework. He's like, guys, Go figure this out. They think they are religiously healthy because of their great sacrifices for God. But in truth, they are blind to their real sinfulness before God. And the the motley crew at Matthew's party, they can't avoid their sinfulness. They are reminded that they are on the outs with people and with God all the time. Like they know it. But Matthew was one of them. And here's Matthew who's been invited by the Messiah, whom they, they're hoping, they're, is this really the one invited to come and follow him? And so Matthew experiences Jesus' merciful call to salvation, and, he, and he's just bringing his friends. He's like, just come over. Jesus is going to be there. Are you sure he wants to eat with us? Just come over. Right? This is the exact kind of person that Jesus has come to bring his, his message of mercy to. This is a threat to the Pharisees and their way of life. And I love the portrait here of Jesus' great mercy reaching out to flagrant sinners, to outcasts, even calling one of them from their midst to be his disciple, a foundational leader of the church to come. It was Matthew. I think we should always have that kind of flavor about our lives and, and our church that we're seeking out those who are sinfully sick and inviting them to experience the healing of their souls, to come into fellowship with Jesus. But this party is offensive to another group too. John the Baptist's disciples. They come and ask Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And to their question, Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Like They still have not understood who Jesus is yet. In the Old Testament, 
Yahweh, God, is referred to on a number of occasions as the bridegroom, as the groom, and, and his people as the bride. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm here. And when you're at the wedding with the groom, you're celebrating, you're partying, you're not fasting, you're feasting. Right? Fasting, these sort of disciplines, they can be, they can be really helpful tools to engage our, our hearts and our bodies with God. Fasting is something where you, you feel it in your mind and your body. Like, I need God, but, but just because you do a certain spiritual behavior, a habit or discipline, doesn't mean it's inherently good if you miss what's right in front of you. And God said, this is a time to feast because I'm here. You're missing it. Not just great sacrifices. Do you see the mercy that's in front of you? And then Jesus gives these, these pictures, these, these word pictures of, of how, how things are different. And we're not just taking an old, a new patch and putting it on an old garment. No, no, there's a new garment here. There's a new bit of righteousness. Let me give you an example of what this could be. Thankfully not. We'll have to ask my wife afterwards. Um, Things that you can do that are good, but they come out of the wrong motivation. I can give my wife flowers every week as a faithful duty. But if the motivation, if the inner heart behind that is wrong, it doesn't bless her. It doesn't grow my love and affection. If I, you know, come home and I knock at the door and have flowers in my hand and I just shove them to her. Here, honey, I got these for you. I had to do it. I made a commitment to do this for you every week. I hope they bring you joy. It's just nothing good is going to come out of that. It doesn't work that way. We can miss the point of these spiritual habits like fasting, especially if it's time to be rejoicing. Jesus warns against these. Here's here's one of the examples that he gives. Uh, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the the patch will pull away from their garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, I was the king of putting holes in my jeans when I was younger, and my mom was the queen of patching those holes. And even I knew this. Like, you had to to get them both shrunk so they didn't just make the terror worse. And here's Jesus saying, he's not just come to, to patch up old traditional ways. If I can just do enough good things to God, he's saying, no, no, you need a new garment. That You need something new. My garment of righteousness, not just that old. He's offering real growth and true righteousness. He's redefining people's understanding of what it means to come into his family and to be a disciple. And he also talks about wineskins, wineskins made from, from animal hides back then. And over time, they, they would stretch to their limit. And over time, they'd become brittle. And so when you would put a new wine that was still fermenting, still expanding, it would burst those old wineskins Jesus hasn't come to just fill up the old Jewish system of traditions, many of which were man-made inventions. Those forms are inadequate for the new kingdom life. He's not doing away with the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill it. And it means that discipleship to Jesus is so much more than just rigid, legalistic adherence to traditional practices. In fact, those who don't know the traditions or who have failed at living them They can come into the kingdom through faith in him, through following the Messiah. They too can learn how to be Jesus' disciple. That, my friends, ticked everyone off. But it's not just the disciples or the the, 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 how Jesus calls them that is unexpected. It's also the miracles, the things he continues to do. It is just blowing people's minds at every turn, unexpected, completely extraordinary. Let's pick up in verse 18. While he was saying this, 
a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died. But come, put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, there's a big group of people mourning the death here. He said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all the region. You bet it did. (laughs) As Jesus went on from there, two blind men came up. Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. (laughs) While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So he's, he's sparring here, right, with these religious leaders and pushing back. He's saying, it's not like what you think. It's something new. God's doing something new. And out of that group of people comes one of their leaders to Jesus in the most desperate situation in a parent's life. And we know a couple things. In the Gospel of Mark, we learn that this man's name is Jairus. He's the leader in the local synagogue, and his daughter has died. And we see Jairus with the same sort of humility that others have come to Jesus with. The same sort of, of honoring behavior. The leper who came to be healed. The centurion whose servant was healed. The paralyzed man's friends who brought him to Jesus. Jairus kneels before Jesus. And he has confidence. It's kind of actually mind-blowing confidence in his ability to do the most unexpected of things. To bring someone back from the dead. Now, Jesus has not raised anybody from the dead up to this point in his earthly ministry. It's not like the guy's seen Jesus do it. He's like, oh yeah, I want one of, I'll take one of those over here, please. Some of the Old Testament prophets had done this, but this is, that's centuries ago. It's not just incredible faith. Jairus is beginning to see Jesus as he really was. The one with the power. The one with the authority. The author of life. The one with the power over death. And so, it says, Jesus got up and went with him. And so did his disciples. But on the way, he is interrupted by another dire need. What must this have been like for Jairus? Wondering if the longer his daughter was gone, the harder it would be to bring her back. Here's Jesus. He's stopping. He's talking to this woman who's had some sort of problem from his perspective forever, like Jesus. When we come back, she's still going to have the problem. So let's go, take care of my daughter, then we can come help this lady. Verse 20 says, A woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said, If I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. 
It's likely that her condition was, was this prolonged, constant menstrual flow, which would have led to anemia as well, just the constant loss of blood. So she's not only weak, but she's weary, socially and religiously unclean because of the bleeding. For 12 long years, she's suffered constantly come up against dead end after dead end, doctor after doctor, no relief. And so she sneaks up. You just touch the edge, the tassel of his cloak, I'm sure, hoping she wouldn't be noticed and believing, if I can just touch him, that's all I need. He's the one with the power. And Matthew's account of the miracle is, is kind of abbreviated. Jesus turned and saw her take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. But Two of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, they give us more details. She sneaks up behind Jesus. She touches his cloak. And Jesus is aware that power has gone out of him and stops in the middle of the crowd and says, Who touched me? And I'm sure the disciples are looking around a little incredulously like, Jesus, we're in a crowd. Everybody's touching everybody. Like, how can you ask, Who touched me? Why does it even matter? The two other Gospels also say that Jesus stopped to listen to her whole story. Right? He listened to it all. And here's Jairus on the side and the disciples waiting. It's really incredible. Jesus' ability to give people exactly what they need, which would include a good dose of waiting on Jairus's part. And so when Jesus says to the woman, take heart, daughter, we see his compassion for her. Such tender, such intimate words And when he says, your faith has healed you, we see the source of the healing. And it's not just her faith, it's the object of her faith. Faith itself does not heal. God is the one who heals. This woman has faith in Jesus' ability to heal her, which has brought her out into this precarious public situation to seek him out. The centurion that we saw, the Roman soldier whose servant was healed last chapter, he believed Jesus could do it without even being present. He said, I know how authority works. You're the one with authority. Just say the word and it'll, it'll happen. You don't even have to come show up. For, for both of them, their faith brings them to a place where only God can heal. But here's what's so important about Jesus calling her out and saying something publicly, which I'm surely she would have liked to have been left alone, thank you very much, by making her healing public with an announcement. He is making a way to remove that public stigma from her. He's like, everybody who hears me, do you see it? She's healed. The religious stigma, the social stigma. Jesus is peeling off these layers of shame so that she can go forth into her new life. It's this incredible, practical picture of the compassion that Jesus has for her. But maybe even more profound for this woman... Matthew tells us in verse 22, it says, and the woman was healed at that moment. The word that Matthew uses for healed is the word sozo, usually a word that means saved. And here we see just what kind of faith this woman has. The kind of faith that God responds to is the kind of faith that looks to Jesus as the one with the authority, the one with the power, the one who is able to save. It's very important to this woman that she was healed, right? It it changes her life. But it is even more important that she has saving faith in Jesus because that changes her eternity. Finally, finally, 
they get back to Jairus' house, where a typical Jewish time of mourning is underway, complete with some professional hired mourners. Wealthy people would hire people to come and, and cry. It's just kind of a, a strange thing we don't have time to get into. But that's what's happening here. And when Jesus says the death of the girl, that she's merely asleep, they laugh at him. So he clears the house of the skeptics. And with that same compassionate touch that he gave to Peter's mother-in-law back in chapter 8, he takes the little girl by the hand and he lifts her up out of the sleep of death. And he wasn't just being silly by saying that she was sleeping. He's actually being quite literal. Because when we die, our bodies wait in sleep for the final resurrection. And can you imagine the intrigue, even the furor, the uproar? Jesus raised someone from the dead. Verse 26, news of this spread throughout all the region. I think that's probably an understatement. And if there were such a thing back then, that's the kind of thing that people begin to shout, fake news, it didn't really happen, she was just sleeping. Right? In different ways, both the woman and this little girl were dead. Physically, spiritually, socially. And the fact that the dead have life again shows that the Messiah and his kingdom have arrived. Jesus is preaching sermons with his life and his actions. And he's saying, do you see who's here? Do you you understand all the things we've been waiting for, the prophecies in the Old Testament? The Messiah is bringing and giving life to the dead. He's here. In the second miracle story, we see the healing of two blind men. Blindness in an era 2,000 years before scientific advancement, before the social graces that we give to to people who, who are without sight, before the Americans with Disabilities Act. Blindness was one of the grimmest maladies Interestingly, it was was a lot more common than it is today. And here it says that the two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. I'm not exactly sure how they followed him. Maybe that's somebody helped. But I actually think it's it's more about giving their allegiance to him. They've heard. They weren't deaf. They've heard about this Jesus, what he's been doing. And, And the title, the thing that they cry out to him is, have mercy on us, son of David. They are crowning him with the title of the Messiah, whose kingdom will have no end and whose presence and rule will be marked by many things, one of which is specifically called out in the Old Testament that he will give sight to the blind. And they're hoping that it'll be them too. And they're seeing Jesus as he truly is. And they're able to place their faith in that. The irony is that they see more clearly than the sighted around them do at this moment. And he asks this of them. They follow him inside and he asks, he says, do you believe that I am able to do this? I mean, what a question from Jesus. Can you just imagine him asking that of you? And once again, they say, yes, Lord, they replied. And once again, Jesus' compassionate touch brings healing in response to their faith. Just like the faith of the bleeding woman. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And then he says something strange that he's actually said it along the way to other people that he's healed. He says, Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. Look, giving sight to the blind was one of the signs of the Messiah's presence and power. But Jesus is not trying to just create a popular frenzied following around some wandering miracle worker. He has deeper strategy in mind because all of the healing that Jesus does is not the main event. He is seeking to call out disciples around him, followers around the Savior who has come to bring salvation from their sin. Right? Here's another sign, the fact that the blind have sight. 
shows that the Messiah and his kingdom have arrived. The final miracle within this collection of, of, of events involves both healing and exorcism. Verse 32, while they're going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. In chapter 8, we saw that demon possession made the two men so violent nobody could be around without getting beat up. And here, in some way, it keeps this man from speaking. And this is like a one-two punch of an announcement here. The exorcism of a demon and the fact that the mute have voice shows the Messiah and his kingdom have arrived. He's preaching with his life and his actions. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he does stuff with demons, that he drives out demons. Is that possible? Can he do that? I don't know. He did is bad. Whatever he did is bad. Don't believe it. And so they, they don't have the eyes of faith yet. The Pharisees cannot see that God is doing something new in Israel. All that they can think is it's just bad. It's evil. The gap between Jesus and these religious leaders just is growing wider. Every week we're seeing it. In chapter 4, this, this season of ministry in Galilee was kicked off, and it was kicked off with these words. Four, uh, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And these same words here in verse 35 of chapter 9. It's this little picture, this, this, this window Matthew's giving us, saying, do you see who's here? Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's saying to people? The crowds are the object of Jesus' ministry, and he is motivated at every turn by compassion. B.B. Warfield, a former Princeton University professor, wrote an essay many years ago called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And it was a study of, of all the words in the Bible that have to do with Jesus' emotions. And Warfield's most striking finding was that there was one word used to describe Jesus' emotions more than all the other ones together. It's the word compassion. Its Greek form is a word that literally means to be moved from the very depths of your being in love for someone. This word is constantly used to describe Jesus Christ's attitude toward people. He's been healing. He's been teaching. He's been encountering religious and satanic opposition. And what comes out of him is compassion. And it's in that moment, in the culmination of that, that he gathers his disciples around him here at the end of chapter 9 to give them a charge. He sees the people of Israel harassed on every side by a broken political system, by religious leaders, by their own sin, by Satan. And he tells his followers... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. He says, look, friends, as long as there are needy crowds, we need disciples to become harvest workers. Jesus' followers are to ask God, the Lord of the harvest, send people out into this field where there's such need. He says, go ahead, guys, go ahead, gals, ask him. Just to do it, to send them out. We're going to see it next week, but immediately in chapter 10, we're at the very end of chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 10. So here you see, he tells us, ask the Father to send them out. And then in chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus and the Father act together. Jesus and the Father are one. Friends, if you are his disciple, then please do not miss what Jesus the King is saying to you here. 
He sends us out into harvest fields, into people who are like sheep without a shepherd, needing to find a true king. And he exhorts us to ask God the Father to send out more, that we would have the eyes of Christ to see all these people, like sheep without a shepherd, needing to experience the compassion and radical transformation of God, needing to be healed at the root not just of the symptoms up top, but of the malady of sin. We are to go to the fields, and we are to ask the Father for more workers. Maybe those two things are the things that you need to consider most as you leave here today, as you think about the heart-blasting compassion of Jesus and the mind-numbing brokenness of our world. See, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the arrival of the kingdom indicates that the greatest miracle of all is often the the least noticed. It is the miracle of forgiveness. A restored, reconciled, right relationship between God and people. It it is amazing. Somebody just shared with me after the first service the, the story of somebody who has been miraculously healed. It's even more amazing when people experience forgiveness. It lasts for eternity. Jesus' compassion extends to the most unexpected people. We see it when he's calling Matthew, one of those notorious tax collectors. He's making a monumental claim about what his kingdom is about. Friends, sin is not cured by religion. When Jesus and the Pharisees square off over this dinner party that he's having with the scum of society, he shows us And here's a quote from a guy named Michael Wilkins, a Bible scholar. He says, Sin is an inner spiritual sickness that must be honestly acknowledged to be incurable by one's own attempts at religious righteousness. Sin is cured only by the great physician. Moreover, sin is the real culprit of humanity's distress. It is that corrupted seed out of which all these other things grow. The way we treat people, the brokenness in our bodies and minds, it comes out of that disastrous root. We suffer. We do. There's no way of getting around that. God is not callous to that. We suffer. Jesus weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus, knowing he's going to raise him from the dead. He still weeps because he knows this is broken. This is not how it was supposed to be. But our suffering is, is temporary in these bodies because there, is, there are more serious matters to be considered underneath. Our world suffers greatly, but yet there are more serious matters underneath these presenting symptoms. The crowds around Jesus seem to want healing, often without addressing the deeper need for salvation from sin. And to make matters worse, they are harassed on every side, by religious leaders shouting at them that more religious activity will take care of the sin problem, but it's balderdash. Right? How many of you know friends, or maybe you've experienced it, where you have been hurt the most by people from a church or who were Christians and said, you just got to work harder, you got to try harder, and you just say, well, my goodness. Jesus is saying, come to me, Matthew 11, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, on you, and learn from me. He's saying, come, I'm the Savior. I'm the source. You can't be good enough. But my righteousness, I'll give it to you. And it will be a gift, and it will be salvation. The concerns that we often think are the greatest ones are not necessarily always so. What are the greatest problems that you're facing in your life right now? Are they truly your greatest need? 
is there something underneath that that needs to be healed, to be cured, to be transformed by God? And as we learn to put ourselves in God's hands, we remember He understands us. He knows our lives better than we do. He actually knows what we need better than we do. He is the best doctor you ever could have had, the doctor who never gets it wrong, the one who actually can like see the whole CT scan of your body. He knows it all. He knows what your, your soul needs. He knows what your mind needs. Do we believe that he's that good and that he knows? Here, here's something that is a challenging thought. God is more concerned with the development of our hearts than he is with the comfort of our lives. I'm not saying he doesn't care about your suffering. He does. He has compassion for you. But what he cares for more than your temporary troubles is the nature, character, and quality of your eternal heart and soul. You're an eternal being with a devastating problem that needs to be transformed only by the power of God, and it's the forgiveness of our sin. There's no question that God enjoys giving good gifts to his children. Matthew 7 talked about that. That is, compassion on our suffering. But sometimes we think the greatest gift does not always address the deepest need in our lives. Our hearts have been so scarred by the effects of sin. Sin hits the center of our affections and our ability to have a relationship with God. God is always concerned with what's best for us. But what is best may not always be what we think is best or are pursuing. The healing of physical suffering is important. It may not happen, though. And if you are experiencing suffering that doesn't get healed in this life, look deeper. There's a deeper suffering that he wants to heal. It's the forgiveness of sins. He is good. He is compassionate. When he performs surgery on you to cut something out, it's for your healing. It's for your health. It's for your flourishing. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Some people think that Jesus is like God version 2.0. Like, God had an anger problem in the Old Testament, so he's like, boop, let's hit reboot. Okay, Jesus, let's try this again. That's not how it was. This is the same God. He has always been compassionate. Just listen to one of the most often repeated statements about the character and nature of God. Isaiah 30 says this, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those all who wait for him. Nehemiah 9, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. These from the Psalms, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Jesus doesn't simply feel compassion. He acts out compassion. And the ultimate picture of it is him giving his life for us. The greatest act, healing our sin, giving us life as a ransom in our place. That's what the Messiah does. And the healing of the outcast, the lame, the leper, the blind, the mute, it's the announcement that the king is here. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would help us I pray you'd help us to understand what it is that we need. We have needs. Some of them are wants that we've confused as needs, but we have needs. And so we pray you'd help us to see underneath that. When, when, when we come into a relationship with you, it's because we've recognized that deep brokenness of sin at the core 
our desire to go our own way, to make our own solutions and salvation. That is pride at the root. And when we come to you as Savior, we confess and turn away from that and we trust that you are the leader, you're the king. This is what it means to step in and become his disciple. This is what Jesus is inviting in the most unexpected way he's inviting people into. And he's showing that he's the one that has power. These miraculous, unexpected acts. So, for those of us this morning that need to step into the family through faith in the Savior, God, I pray you would enable them to do so. That they'd see you, Jesus, as clearly as those blind men saw you, recognizing the Messiah. And Lord, as we follow you, I pray that that we would experience your compassion in such a way that fills us up that we would go out and just like Matthew, say, I don't know all the details, but come and see this guy. Come and see. I was outside. He brought me in. The transformation of life. Lord, we pray that you would send out workers into your harvest field, into our city, into government employment places, the the communities of first responders, into military communities. Would you send out people into that harvest field, into our families, into our schools? into Patrick Henry High School and Lewis and Pershing Middle School and all the elementary schools and the schools around, would you send out men and women and kids who love you and who will point people to the compassionate Messiah? We pray you do this, God, and that you would send us, that we would trust you, that we'd follow you, that our hearts would be full of your love and grace for us, just rejoicing in the fact that you give us the free gift of salvation and it's grace and we can't earn it and we receive it. Lord, I pray that that gift, that that would be forefront on our minds this Christmas. You've given us everything. All the rest is icing. Lord, might we celebrate you right. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.